everybody, and welcome to Tribecast, the flagship podcast of the Cross Tribune. This is Jordan Vianne, city government reporter, and I am here with Jason Gilman, the Lacrosse city planner. Uh, we are here today to talk about what a city planner does and how that affects people. Jason, so what does a city planner do? Well, um, a great way to characterize it is uh, I, I get many citizens that will ask me, uh, what is your your vision for the city? And my my vision for the city wouldn't be a very democratic way to uh, do city planning. So I always remind them that my my role as a city planner is to make sure that citizens get a chance to contribute to the vision of the city. And we do that through the creation of plans uh, and public engagement and public facilitation. Um, part of my role also in, in making sure that citizens are engaged uh, in the city's future is to give them good information like data about the city. So traditionally when you see plans, you usually see some sort of a background element or a data element that uh, gives you a sense of what's going on in the city. And sometimes that data is primary or secondary data, secondary data being the stuff that anybody can retrieve on the internet, like from the Bureau of Labor Statistics to the U.S. Census. Primary data is that stuff that we collect that's really unique to the city. Uh, But citizens are empowered by learning about their city and then they can contribute to what policies they might like to see enacted to affect the vision of the city. So just... Real quick, when we're when we're seeing plans, we're not saying, "Oh, these these group of people at City Hall get together and say, this is what I'd like to think would happen," and they meet one time and they're like, "Yep, that's that sounds great." It's like it's a month. Well, like there are many months. Like I think the last one was like a year. The Highway 53 corridor master plan was, you know, a group of people met every month, every few weeks for, I think, more than a year. So tell me a little bit about what goes into this process. It it isn't uncommon for us to dream a little bit. You know, as planners, of course, we all have our own biases and passions and, you know, uh, would like to to see the city uh, do certain things. But in the end, uh, we understand how important public advocacy is, which means you have to go slow to go fast. Which uh, So you go through a process of uh, education and awareness, which is uh, collecting good data, Uh, Now, there is some danger to collecting data because perspective can creep in. For instance, if I'm really concerned with uh, homelessness, I might might focus solely on homelessness issues and and the data surrounding that versus other things that are affecting the city, like decaying infrastructure or aging population or other other things. Mm -hmm. So we have to be somewhat objective about the way we collect data to be holistic and and try to be non-biased. But once the data is established, then we can we can create education and awareness by uh, uh, using a di- different formats or different platforms to get the data out to people. Uh, sometimes it's public meetings and website uh, access, and uh, we, we're, we're hoping to be much more creative in the future. I think mm-hmm. infographics kind of crept in for a while, and now people are saying, well, you really need to have a YouTube channel and you know <laughs> do, do much more engaging things. Yeah, so you do a little bit of everything to try to reach as many people as you can. And, you know, you do have events where people can come and they can tell you what they 
what they think directly. Right, right. And you have more than one, and you do it at different times, and all of that stuff. So it's not, like, it's a complicated process to come up with these plans. It's not a, you know, one person says, this is what we should do. It, it is a complicated process, and, you know, we're always concerned about, uh, are we reaching our whole population? Because oftentimes when we go to public meetings, you'll see the same faces of engaged citizens who we enjoy talking to, but we, we don't often see, there are many people in the community we never see, and it may be because they're working two jobs or they've got, you know, a lot of uh, uh activities after work and they just can't afford the time to come to city meetings and maybe because they're not interested enough you know that we haven't done a good job interest uh, interesting them mm -hmm. in in the data uh, and it could be that they're fearful or, or intimidated by city hall or you know so we have to get creative to get out to people and make sure that the vision for the city is more inclusive than exclusive and you guys take this pretty seriously. Can you talk a little bit about why that is? Like, how does the how do these plans impact the city? Yeah, they're they're very very impactful, and and the reason being is that uh, for um, first of all, they give the elected body, so the council people, a document to refer to that represents public advocacy, and you can imagine without that, what are they? using to make decisions. They may use, you know, a vocal minority's influence yeah. that shows up at the meeting, or they may use, um, you know, uh, uh, something that's very concerning to them at that particular moment, uh, or they may use uh, influence from somebody that is more, sh more concerned with maybe a short-term economic gain versus a long-term economic, social, environmental gain, you know, yeah. the triple bottom line type of thing. Yeah. So that's where the plans really become useful because they give the council, the elected body, a very holistic view of what the public's vision is and what the public's ad advocating for. That's the goal anyway. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, some examples. One of the ones that is coming to a close is the uh, City Vision 2020 Downtown Master Plan. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how that plan has been used over its, you know, like 20-year lifespan? Yes, I mean, um, and, and I'm looking back, mm -hmm. of course, uh, and uh, uh, reflecting on things that Robin Moses, the um, director mm -hmm. of uh, our uh, downtown Main Street uh, program, has reflected, as well as our planners. Yeah. And uh, we've had a lot of uh, uh, outcomes to that. So, so plans oftentimes will give uh, granting agencies that have funding mm -hmm. uh, confidence that the city will spend the money if we apply for the grant because it's there's public advocacy behind it. And mm -hmm. the last thing a lot of granting agencies want to do is send you a check and then have the public say, we don't want to spend money on that, and yeah. then you have to return the money. That's like a... Uh, not a good scenario for uh, grant, granting agencies. So plans become a great lever in terms of bringing outside capital to cities. Uh, specifically, so it kind of but reassures the people who, who you know give those that this is something that the city and the public here in the community here they've put some thought into this. Right, they're going to support yeah, mm -hmm. they support the effort. 
more specifically, you know, like bricks and mortar, uh, the streetscaping improvements that have happened downtown, uh, the parking investment, uh, the, the Riverside North uh, acquisitions and setting the stage for redevelopment to occur there, uh, specific buildings like the Hampton Inn, uh, mm -hmm. Park Plaza, Bell Square, the Charmont, uh, the landmark by the river, and others uh, were the result of uh, very targeted um, uh, goals in the downtown plan that said these are areas that we should really focus on redevelopment. And the strategies and tactics then that sort of follow those goals mm -hmm. are things like regulatory strategies like uh, zoning uh, or even deregulatory strategies, uh, financial tools like tax incremental financing or uh, low interest loan programs or us working in collaboration with other agencies like the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation to get grants. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the goals sort of set in motion a whole bunch of strategies and tactics that let the city get these mm -hmm. projects done. Yeah, it seems like, you know, getting these plans also gives you guys a lot of direction as city staff members, you know, when it comes to what sort of things should you be focused on. The example that always come, that comes to my mind is, you know, whenever the city, whenever anybody applies for like a conditional use permit or something, you look and see, does this match what our plans are calling for in that area? Yeah, exactly. Um, because, you know, uh, the public is investing in the department and staff time, you know, our mm -hmm. operating budget, even though, you know, our op the planning department's operating budget is uh, subsidized not just by the tax levy, but it's mm -hmm. also we, we get HUD, HUD funding and TIF administration funding and, and grants mm -hmm. and things that help, yeah. with, you know, to soften the cost. But we want to know that when we're spending staff time on priorities, those priorities align with the public's vision of the, of the city and, the, and mm -hmm. that the public's vision of the city is embedded in those plans. So one of the plans that was, you know, pretty recently completed, I mentioned it before, is U.S. Highway 53 corridor plan. And that, uh, if our listeners don't know, runs from about Interstate 90's Exit 3 to La Crosse, basically the La Crosse River. And it follows uh, that road that has five million different names, but in this case it's Copeland, Rose, maybe there's a little bit of Third Street, I don't think, I don't remember. Yeah, it, but, it is U.S. 53 yeah. Copeland and yeah. Rose, yeah. Yeah. So why was that an area that needed a plan? And how are you guys going to use that plan now that it's been approved by the council? Well, um, imagine, you know, the ge geography of that corridor. It's two and a half miles long. There mm -hmm. are 600 acres of developable land flanking it on both sides within a two-block area. Mm -hmm. It uh, is one of the principal gateways into the city, so it carries 30,000 cars a day. That's average annual weekday traffic. Uh, there were known issues occurring on the corridor, like the DOT's investment in Exit 3 at the interstate, the Eagle Watching uh, area. Mm -hmm. uh, we knew that there were land use issues, like underperforming property, like the uh, uh, decay at Bridgeview Plaza, where we've had mm -hmm. a lot of vacancies and ultimately the closure of Shopco. Uh, and before that, Burger King, uh, yeah. and uh, and historically, cities have uh, those types of corridors become kind of a 
hodgepodge collection of land use. You know, the, the, they tend to they, they tend to attract uh, strip commercial type uses, sure, and then some housing. Uh, but there's been a lot of policy considerations and debate by think tanks around the city, like the Urban Land Institute, as to how do you take a piece of geography like that and rearrange it so that it's much more beneficial for the public and, and the city as a whole. And the concept that the 53 corridor plan laid out is in alignment with that. It's, it's a, a, a pulse, what they call a pulse node pattern, which is really taking neighborhood centers, which is not a new idea. Actually, John Nolan wrote about neighborhood centers back in 1911. And of course, he had a presence here. He helped plan La Crosse's park system, you know, famous mm -hmm. landscape architect and planner yep. uh, from Philadelphia, I believe. Um, but uh, uh, neighborhood centers divided by multifamily housing and then low density and single family housing behind the corridor allow for uh, the density uh, to occur for people to walk to services, to access transit. Uh, cr it creates a sustainable transit corridor where you have more, mm -hmm. more people on the corridor that can ride the bus and use the bus, uh, which has all kinds of a trickle-down effect, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of uh, giving people more economic security. If their car breaks down, they've got a bus, you know. Uh, and, and then it also rearranges the landscape in a more productive way so that we actually see you know, all of the infrastructure expenses that the city has made on that corridor, plus the service costs of every lineal foot of curb, mm -hmm. is not served well when we have vacancies and blight and, and things that occur. So we want infill to occur. So mm -hmm. that, that's what the plan does. It helps to create a more economically sustainable uh, land use pattern, but also socially sustainable and environmentally sustainable. And when you're talking about efficiency and stuff like that, does that have anything to do with the fact that we just don't really have a lot of space to expand, so we have to make the best of the area that we have? Yeah, to a certain extent, except that, I, I, I mean, that uh, there's a little, you know, I think mm -hmm. the, the, the notion that La Crosse has no place to expand is somewhat uh, um, maybe overstressed by people okay. because uh, when I count the acreage that the city could expand to into mm -hmm. today, uh, there are probably over a thousand acres of developable land within the city. And mm -hmm. where do those occur? They occur because of reuse of property like the Kmart site or the Bridgeview oh, sure. Plaza site. They occur on uh, areas that we're freeing up in master planning like around the airport or the mm -hmm. uh, uh, the area that the city acquired years ago that are currently currently being used for soccer fields, but could be something else in the mm -hmm. future, um, and uh, and then lots and lots of you know lots and remnant yeah. properties and things around the community that could okay. be redeveloped. So if you add all that up, there there's a substantive area that could be developed. Mm -hmm. However, you know what you mentioned is uh, is very true that we. We want to make the best use of real estate so that it has that triple bottom line, or I would even say quadruple bottom line impact on the city, economic uh, sustainability so that for all the costs and infrastructure and services that we're getting, uh, you know, efficiency in terms of how the investment per lineal foot of curb mm -hmm. uh, is sustained in the city. And downtowns and urban areas tend to perform much better than sprawling suburban areas in terms of just the return on investment. Okay. Uh, but then there's also an inherent social gain when you live in a, in a community 
in a true community where there's a neighborhood mm-hmm. center and a you know a meeting place, uh, you know, like for coffee or whatever. Sure. Uh, so there there are all these, uh, and then environmentally too. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're making better use of the existing landscape where we already have infrastructure for stormwater and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that that's why urban infill is very uh, very important, and the fifty three plan proposes to do just that. How does the execution of these plans affect people? There are a variety of different ways, but the easiest way to put it is the city uses three principal tools. There are regulatory tools like zoning, Mm -hmm. uh, financial tools like tax incremental financing or low-interest loan programs, uh, or leveraging HUD funding, which Mm -hmm. we're an entitlement community, so we get HUD funding that helps us uh, take care of uh, blight Mm -hmm. and, and address poverty and things like that. Uh, and then education and awareness. So um, one of the great tools is that we can take a plan that, uh, like the 53 corridor plan and we mm-hmm. can start to talk to developers and investors and people that now have some mm-hmm. confidence that the city knows what it wants and that if they bring a proposal in, they know what we want so that mm-hmm. they don't make a big investment kind of planning and then they get shot down at a, at a public hearing because it's not what we wanted. Yeah. You know, it, it builds confidence in the investor uh, realm. You know, that means that for investors, they have a little bit, they, they don't have to worry so much when they're first trying to, like it eliminates some risk for them. And for the people who live there, they can look at that plan and say, okay, so this is what the city wants to be happening here. So they, they have a little bit of warning. They know what's going on. Right. And when, when you say the city, <laughs> I don't want citizens to think that that's some, you know, uh, like, you know, independent government entity that is, uh, you know, yeah. uh, ha- has sort of top-down it, the city really means the community. Yeah. You know, because the plan, again, is engaging the citizens mm-hmm. to create the vision. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's like these, the community as a whole rather than just, you know, just a few people at City Hall. Right. Um, so, what do you do when market forces and plans don't necessarily coincide? That's a great question, and that's one reason that plans are uh, just that. They're plans. They're not regulatory documents. So uh, plans are malleable uh, as things change, like if we have an economic downturn or let's say um, at some point uh, we we have enough uh, certain type of housing in the city, mm-hmm. uh, the plan can be revisited and we can, we can work uh, in partnership with the with the private parties whether it be our business community or our investors to look at well what is feasible and what is actually going to be sustained because mm-hmm. we we don't want to f- uh, I, I can tell you a great story about uh, a building in Racine Wisconsin where um, mm-hmm. the city really wanted ground floor retail in a residential building downtown and mm-hmm. they forced that. I mean, the developer was made to do it, even though they weren't certain if the market would be able to get that space filled. And that mm-hmm. space actually sat empty for quite a long time. I don't even know if it's filled today. Yeah. But that's the danger of not being market responsive. And, you know, we, mm-hmm. we, we do try to have constant dialogue with our business community and our investors to understand well, mm-hmm. what is going to actually be viable here. Well, thank you, Jason. That kind of covers 
planning as a whole and what exactly what that is, tune in sometime soon. We will have a second installment where we talk a little bit more about housing concerns and what's going on in the housing market in La Crosse. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity.